Dabbing Podcast. Welcome, everybody, to another episode. I have with me today the lovely, mindful, Muslima, and inspirational speaker, and my co-host, Noman Farooq. Mindful Muslima is a mother of five, licensed educator of 25 years, and a big sister to the Muslim community. She has been doing dawah in NYC since the late 1990s, where she worked with and served on all the idaras of some of the top U.S. Muslim organizations in the U.S., like Islamic Relief, ICNA, Mass, and AIRA, to build community programs, interfaith exchanges, and bring aid to Muslim communities. <clears throat> She's an educator and instructor and has taught thousands of people and also a trainer and consultant for the U.S. Department of Education. Welcome, Mindful Muslima. Thank you for joining us today. Assalamu alaikum. Happy to be here. And thank you for joining Noman. Of course. Walaikum salam, everyone. Um, happy to be here and excited for this conversation today. Excellent, excellent. So we're very excited to uh, interview you and get a female perspective. I want you to kind of think of this today, sister, as two men who want to learn more about how to improve in relationships. I myself am married. I'm also a father of four. Um, Mr. Noman, you've recently been married. No kids yet, right? Yes, but sir. Uh, this is something also that you're just starting off. So there's, inshallah, going to be a lot of good tips for us today. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yep. And uh, it's, a, it's a learning process, especially, you know, when I say recently married, I mean recently married in the last few months. And something I talked to Kareem about, I appreciate it. One of the things I talked to Kareem about sort of offline conversations is, you know, those first few months, you're really just trying to understand the person's routine. Like you're, you're trying to understand your spouse's routine, the way they live, their habits, and they're trying to understand your routine and your habits. And then in that time frame, you're just sort of, you're trying to learn to live with each other's differences, but accepting those differences too. I always say the first two years is like all adjustment. What are your thoughts about that, sister? It's all adjustments. In fact, one of my best friends is a Mexican Muslim, and he has a really, they have a really nice saying in, in Mexico. They say, you know, it's two people are their own planets. So you're trying to bring two planets together. It's going to be a lot of activity and, and physics and, and so forth, mm. right? Yeah. Yeah, subhanAllah. It's true. I think everything you said is true. And, and I think you learn so much, not just about the other person in those two years, but yourself. Because you learn about your capacity <laughs> for patience, uh, your capacity for like people being in your space. It's a very different thing to talk to someone outside and then to have them in the same home with you where you have to wake up and have routines together. And it's a lot of compromise. So I would say, yeah, it's kind of a make or break in those first two years and how you respond to each daily event as opposed to react is it, it can make all the difference. Totally. Let's start with the first, I think, most common construct that we all hear it's marriage is half of your deen uh, what does that even mean right um it doesn't mean something literal like you'll be praying double the salah or what have you right it's more of a psycho social emotional let's say upgrade or improvement in oneself and i kind of think about it as whatever i thought i accomplished as an individual marriage really helps test, refine, or even nullify that. Like, oh, I'm so patient. I'm so generous. I'm so emotionally intelligent. And then all of a sudden, marriage is this constant, daily, present arena where you are refining your human, spiritual, personal skills. Uh, what are your thoughts about that, sister? 
No, most definitely. Um, what to me, what marriage really teaches you is a certain level of humility and and again that that ability to compromise and and not always have it your way. It's really hard because we're in routines, especially if we're getting married in our twenties, early twenties. You know, we have this way that we like to do things, and it becomes half your dean in the sense that you're really supposed to be doing it together for each other. Uh, the way my husband always said it to me is like. I could easily look out for myself, you know, outside of the basic things I'm supposed to do for the family. You could easily just look out for yourself. But how much different is the relationship if I'm always looking out for you before myself and you're always looking out for me before yourself? It becomes less of like we're living in two silos and more like we're constantly covering one another. And so I think a lot of it has to do with your mindset. Unfortunately, I think a lot of our our families... There's a lot of toxicity before marriage and that we experience in our homes. And sometimes we bring these ideas and expectations and fears and hopes. And, and then when the other person's brand new with us, sometimes we jumble them up and, and they influence our decisions. And so I find that a lot with women that approach me. They've had a lot of experience in their homes. Then they're newly married for the first time, like the brother. Um, and so alhamdulillah, there's a lot of what what if, what if it's going to be like my mom's relationship with my dad or what happened to my cousin. And so we see a lot of that. So just keeping in mind that we um, it's something where you're pulling on a lot of the Quran and Sunnah and all of those natural everyday mannerisms to do this together as opposed to us living alone anymore and just constantly thinking of the other person first. And I think it really, really helps. You know, that, um, <clears throat> excuse me. Yeah, that reminded me of the importance of premarital counseling for a single guy or a girl, single Muslim guy or a girl, regardless if they're even courting or not, because just like what the sister said is that you may have some sort of trauma or some sort of behavior, toxic behavior that you don't even recognize and haven't even realized about yourself. And you don't want to go into a courtship or even a marriage with that background and putting it onto someone else, right? And totally blindsiding them. Um, the whole point for me, you know, when I did premarital counseling was I wanted to figure out what what is what are some blind spots that I have, number one. Uh, number two, how can I rectify them and sort of adapt them, change them so that when I start courting or when I enter into a marriage, then all that toxic behavior will be behind me. And, you know, you can't necessarily address everything. Some things will just come up throughout the marriage, but you won't, you, you definitely want to get out the, get those main big things out of the way for sure. Yeah, we, we actually teach that. That's that's the main problem we have is we found that because I think um, in Muslim marriages are approaching almost like a 50% divorce rate. We're like on our way to be like, you know, head to head with the non-Muslims. Um, we really focus on premarital education. And so one of the biggest things that we do with women is we do that. We teach that how to find a spouse by the Quran and Sunnah. And they're shocked when they get inside um, the classes or courses that we teach to find out that they don't start with the guy. The majority of the beginning of the whole thing is you and you, you and Allah. How can we talk about what you like? It's just, you know, the whole mindset reset and reconnecting with Allah and addressing exactly what you said. And that is such a huge part. And we find that when women do that, they're so much more confident and understanding what they need to do and who they are so that they have better chance to pick the right person. And there's, like you said, less issues once you're in a marriage because you've done your due diligence. And I think that's so true. What I'm hearing there is 
enhancing our self-awareness, understanding myself as a person better is actually going to give me an easier time to even know what would be a good spouse for me. And that kind of brings us to compatibility, right? Like, how do I know I'm ready? And how do I determine what's compatible for me, perhaps based on the Quran and Sunnah? Because one thing I realized is there's theory and practice in everything. And often we say, well, marry someone for their deen. Um, don't just prioritize their wealth or their beauty or their family status and lineage, like the hadith says, but make sure you marry someone for their deen. But does that hadith exclude the other four? No, not necessarily, right? Perhaps um, if we only marry someone for their deen, and I remember a brother once consulted with me from Turkey, and he said, look, I'm in a dilemma. I'm talking to the sister. Um, she has really good religion. Her family's waiting for an answer. My family's pushing me to decide, but I am just not attracted to her at all. Should I just marry her because of this hadith? Just marry her for her deen. What are your thoughts about that, sister? Yeah, no, the Prophet, peace be upon him, encouraged us to marriage people that we're attracted to for the obvious reasons, because there's all types of fitna that happens after that, all types of challenges, right, where then now I'm married, I really appreciate this person, but I might find my eyes wandering, I might find myself wanting something else. And that's a very natural human thing. So um, that that's something actually the Prophet, peace be upon him, encouraged. And to your nod about like, it's not just about religion. We realize that it's really hard because these are these are kind of fluffy ideas that we're you know entertaining. But like, what does that really mean for me? How do I actually figure this stuff out for myself? What we did is we came with like a system. And what I typically tell women is this, and this is something I've done for 20 years. You have to have your top non-negotiables. And I would say what the average person does in the Western world, which is what we've kind of copied a little bit, which is we do that small talk, right? Oh, do you like this? Oh, do you like that? And then we get into deeper and deeper and deeper questions. But by then we're emotionally sucked in. We've also spent a lot of time with that person. We feel like I'm super invested. Now, if I turn back, their family will think this. And so what I suggest is we don't go that route. We start with the non-negotiables first, like the top must-haves, must-not-haves, because it's really easy within a short amount of time to know if they're going to meet them or not, if they don't, you can let them go and you can move on. And why do I say the non-negotiables? Because the average person, when they have these things that are like, core, and I'll give you an example in a second, like the core beliefs in yourself, like that are really important to you. We try to be nice and give them up. But later on in marriage, we find those are the stickers. Those are the ones that really get us in the end. I'll give you an example. Um, a sister came to me and she said, I got married and I was trying to be really kind about, you know, issues with my family. But the truth is, I really it was a non-negotiable for me to not live too far from my mother. You know, because I want to take care of her, it was important to me. My husband moved me to the other side of the world because of his job. And every day I resent him. I'm so angry. I'm so mad. And it, it, it ended up making a huge wedge in their relationship. Another sister said to me, I really wanted to be able to work. He encouraged me not to, but I had gone to medical school. So I want you to imagine I have like all this investment and I just put it down and now I'm married 19 years in and I want a divorce. It's enough of, of the fact that I let go of my life. I want me time now. And if I went back with both of those women, I said, I don't think it's that your marriage couldn't have worked. I just think that you never really held on to those non-negotiables as non-negotiables. Like you guys could be really great people, but you forewent like the things that were really important to you. That's a common mistake. So I encourage women to know what those are. He must have this. He must not have that. And the same thing for the guys. 
And really, if they don't meet those, those you don't negotiate on. But then there's other things like thicker questions like, hey, do you want to raise your kids and put them to Islamic school? You might want to negotiate those or like lighter things like where do you like to go on weekends? Those are thinner questions. So we tell women go forward with non-negotiables, then thick questions, then thin to kind of avoid that whole spiraling into a mess once you're married, if that makes sense. For sure. What are some common non-negotiables you have maybe heard over the years? Like any clustering of certain things like women want to be able to work or live near their family. Um, Do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, I would say for women first, the first thing they need to know is actually before they even construct those are what are the Islamic boundaries? Because, you know, they could go, I want to work, I want to do this, but they don't really understand like the husband's rights or your rights. So what I suggest to the women is, you know, make sure that you are thinking about um, basically you understand the husband's rights, your rights, the kids' rights. So when you choose those non-negotiables, they're not selfish and they're not out of alignment with the dean. So for example, and then to be highly specific. So here's another one that happens all the time. It's always the thing with the women and the working and the money, right? So I said to them, okay, when you're asking him about working, did you say anything about pre-children, after children? Because a lot of people make assumptions that you're going to work, but obviously, like the guys, they, the guys say this to them often. And then they're like, how did he not know? You know, oh, obviously after kids, you're going to stop because you should be home with the kids. And she's like, no, I'll just go get a babysitter. I'll just send them to daycare. And he's like, what? And so also when you're talking about those non-negotiables, get a little bit more hyper-specific of what do you mean by that? So what I would say to men is if a woman comes to you in courting and says, I want to be able to work, could you say, oh, um, I'd love to know more about that. Could you tell me more? Like, just tell me more. And then she'll naturally be like, oh, and what do you think about after we have kids? How do you feel about that? Would you still want to work? Oh, what do you feel about, like, ask those clarifying questions Because otherwise, you might find some big surprises. It's often with things like that, about the paying for things. Uh, Oh, you know, my husband takes care of me. What does that actually mean? Really getting clear about what you're able to do, what you're not able to do. And, um, you know, everybody having their expectations really clear. And I think that Mm. really helps. Yeah, that, um, you know, thinking about that, just piggybacking off of you, sister, is uh, the idea that um, people want to look for someone who is religious. It's like, what does that even mean in the first place? Because everybody's definition of religious is different. Everyone's is, right? And the the importance of specifying what exactly you mean by such and such thing, whether it's religious, whether it's being taken care of, whether it's like whatever it is, right? The importance of specifying what that means is so is so is so important when you're going through that courtship process as opposed to just saying vague things as the person you're talking to and just assuming they know what you mean. Hundred percent, hundred percent. And then I, some women, I asked to them, they they say, "Oh, I want a guy who's religious." I asked them when they, because I do consultation calls. I said, "What do you? What does that mean to you?" They go, "Well, you know, he has to eat zabiha." I said, "That's it. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. He has to eat zabiha. That's it." <laughs> wow, mashallah. Oh, he should pray. And here's the thing I want to say about that. Having a husband who prays is, a, is not a non-negotiable for a woman. That's a non-negotiable for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You actually should not stay in a marriage, according to the scholars, if the spouse is not praying, especially, you know, the men. And so, subhanAllah, I'm like, sister, this is given. 
So, you know, there should be those Islamic givens. Like, yeah, we should have a halal lifestyle. There, there should be givens. And I think we should vocalize those. This is what it means to me, just FYI. But these are my personal non-negotiables. So going back to what um, Kareem said about, like, what are some of those? It is the working. It is where they're allowed to live. It's about, like, um, if they want to travel. A lot of women are asking about travel. And that's a really tricky one. I wouldn't touch it because it's a lot of fiqh. But, like, you know, what, what is, everyone is comfortable with. You know, um, what if this happens? Um, a lot of women are getting into marriages, especially reverts. I think they they call me and they say, well, he told me in the beginning I'm going to be paying for half or I'm going to be paying for most because he's trying to build a business. And then when he's done, um, he'll help me out and then we'll like change roles. So there's a lot of things going on <laughs> there in our community. So I think really they we have to be clear for ourselves first, Islamically, what is allowed, clear with one another. I, and then and then what we also stumble upon is when the women are doing this clarity checking, um, they have the families in the house telling them, why are you asking him so many questions? You're going to run him away. Just say yes, yes, yes. So then we have the old cultural standards of those families too. And the women say, is it bad for me to ask questions? My mom said, stop. So there's all these other cultural nuances as well. So true. So this brings up for me roles, rights, responsibility topic, right? Um, what are a man's rights in a marriage that you typically try to educate Muslim women around uh, and vice versa, men's rights, uh, responsibilities towards a woman? Yeah, that's really interesting um, to talk about with women. Um, it's really hard because of the onset of feminism, feminism as we know. And when I used to talk to women, I'm not even joking, 10 years ago, it was so much easier to have this conversation. Now I have to, I have to really tiptoe gingerly. I have to say everything with a lot of like, you know, finesse before because, because we've been so inundated with the fact that we have to be equal to men. And um, we have to show who we are and all this stuff, which means where before there would naturally be one captain of the ship. Now we're competing for the role at most of the time. And so that's really hard for women. They don't understand why they have to um, do certain things they have to do. So the, I, I approach with understanding. The... <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I, I approach it a different way because I find that's too like egregious with women. So what I do is I say, well, first, let's understand the nature of one another. Like, this is just human nature. Like, just get him, okay? And then I and, and I actually do like an entire, I had to do an entire course on this because it was asked so many times. I'm like, I can only talk to you one-on-one. -on -one. So in it, I had to explain to them, like, all of the sunnah that the Prophet, peace be upon him, and the wives did so they can understand kind of the beauty of it. And they would fall in love with it. It would be romantic as opposed to rites and rituals and rules. Because as soon as you come at women that way, they don't want to hear it. But if you could talk to them in a more flowery way, they're much more interested because it sounds very sweet and like what the prophet did and all. Oh, this is what they want, right? So I do that because not not in a way of any type of um, you know manipulative way, but because it's all it's not just what you say; it's how you say it, right? So I say to them, yeah. Right. So I say to them, this is really true about um, let's talk about like the nature of men. OK, men really, really need to be appreciated. The number one usually complaint of men is I don't feel my wife appreciates me. I don't feel she sees what I do. You know, I'm out here working and I'm doing the thing. And then she's always complaining. And then so I said, so you have to understand appreciation is really, really high on their list. Right. And then for women, it's maybe something that's not that at all. Like, yes, they want to be appreciated. But with their husband, like they want to feel loved, connected with, you know, heard and all that stuff. So I said, you can't. No, 
instantly, you know, think that's wrong of him because you have your own needs. Let's just look at them as human needs and understand the other type of human, right? Male versus female, or I don't know whatever else they want to say out there, but I'm just going with those. Um, and alhamdulillah, like I, I genuinely start from understanding men and understanding how they are. So then the women start to feel light bulbs go off. Oh, that's why he always does this when I say that. I said, oh, I said, and then I have them do a lot of self-awareness. Let's recognize other times when we're saying things that we've noticed certain responses or reactions. Oh yeah, he's always upset when I, so then I teach them a different way to talk to their husband. Like, let me give you an example. Maybe this sounds familiar to you. When you want your husband to help you, you could easily tell him, hey, you know, you never help me. Don't you see me doing everything? I'm doing everything. I work too. And you could start and you could be really, you know, that might be true. But a man instantly is like, whoa, you're attacking me. I feel attacked, right? And that is only going to give him a response the woman doesn't want. She wants him to empathize. Oh, you're right. It's hard for you. Let me help you. But that's not what he's going to do. He's going to be like, Oh, you're, you're not realizing all I do. I do a lot. You're attacking me. So I tell the sisters instead, look, instead, you have to say to your husband, like, I, I words with I instead of you. I really love when you helped me the other day. And I felt like it was so hard for me at work, but I came home and you really understood me. I really want to tell you I love that. And I would love if you could help me just a little bit more with this or this because it really, really touched me. If a woman says like that, the husband, he's not going to be so taken back, you know? So I teach them how to talk differently. I teach them how to understand him. And then when they learn that it's not just him, they can change the dynamic. They start to become more self-aware and you find the, the issues less and less. So again, we start with me instead of the other person most of the time. That's the approach I try to help women with. Love it. I'm hearing you say we have to recognize when we're using criticism statements like you and always and never, and it feels like an attack, and that can go both ways, um, using I feel statements. And something that I've coined myself is positive packaging or packaging with ihsan. I would love it if, insert need or request, it's so wonderful when you do this, or I really appreciate it when you can help me around the house. I, I trust that you can do that with me this Friday with, before your mom comes for dinner. There's so many ways you can set things up and kind of harness the inner good and love that the person actually has for you, right? And that's a big thing. Another point that I feel like you were saying is commonly what I hear from gentlemen is, you know, women do want to feel more of that love, affection, connection. And for men, oftentimes... What's synonymous with feeling loved and appreciated is respect, the R word. I mean, so many times a husband says, I don't respect him because often this is what translates for us as we don't feel loved when we're not respected. Is this something you have also mm -hmm. encountered, sister? This concept of yeah, respect? Yeah, 100%. And I think another thing that, that to be touched on is um, the cultural definition of respect. That's another problem, right? Because we're people that marry or intermarry from different parts of the world. What your level of respect might mean is different than myself. So even before that, I tell the women, um, when you say love, I need him to love me. I need him to show me love. What does that mean? Well, I'm from, you know, Texas and it means this. And I'm from Bangladesh and it means that. And I'm from Egypt and it means this. And we all think we're, we're all trying to love each other. We're all trying to respect each other. But the other person has a total 
totally different idea of what that means. So the first thing I say too to women is you need to ask him, what does that mean? What does a good wife look like to you? What does love look like to you? What does respect look like to you? Because when I understand it, it's more, you know, likely I'll do it because I only understand from my cultural worldview. And so that's another one. That's what you made me think about was like, yes. And I hear that a lot. Women say that and they go, I don't know how to talk to him. He just doesn't get it. He just shuts down. He walks away. He goes on his phone. He's on the couch. I want to talk about his feeling and how I hurt his level of respect, but he doesn't want to talk to me, you know? So then they don't, they don't even know how to deal with that. And that's another one. Maybe you can help us know how to deal with that. What do we do as women when you, when, when you want to go off into the cave and be left alone? I often tell them, leave him alone right there. Like leave him alone. <laughs> when he's ready to talk later, you talk to him, but I'm sure you, you gentlemen could tell us better, you know? Yeah. Gonna... What are your thoughts on that? <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I, I read a, a little, uh, a little bit from uh, I believe it's it's Dr. Gray's book. Men are from Venus, or women are from Mars, or if if I got that mixed up, women are from Mars. But um, one of the things, yeah, one of the things he mentions is how men will cope with dealing with stress or anxiety and worry or anything that's really on their mind. And the way we deal with it is that we just want to be left alone. Like we want to be alone in our own thoughts, having to reconcile what we feel and just having the space to do that. And it's really important for a guy to be able to verbalize that and explain what that means. Because, you know, you enter a marriage and if you don't, if you don't, you know, let's say tell your spouse that, hey, the way I deal with stress or anxiety and worry is by being alone, being by myself, that does not equate to me being angry with you or being upset with you, right? Because that's how she's going to feel. She's going to feel like, what did I do to him? Did I upset him? Well, you know, how can I make him feel better? And 99.9% of the time, it's just, he just needs to be by himself and just have his own space. I think so. There's definitely situations where that's useful. Um, the other idea that came up for me, though, is, you know, earlier I mentioned a cultural worldview. We all have a frame of reference. Cultural psychology is very intimate with our personalities. And I think that specifically in Eastern cultures, from my experience, men aren't really taught to access emotions beyond anger. Right. And anger also tends to be a secondary emotion for things like shame or embarrassment or disrespect. And when we get angry or we feel threatened emotionally, human nature is we will typically either avoid or get aggressive. Right. And so when we avoid, it's because we do feel hurt in some way or fashion. And oftentimes, I think perhaps because the feminine will have let's say, more comfort or accessibility to their emotions. They want to talk things out or they want to keep going after the person as they withdraw. And it makes the male withdraw more, right? Like they won't leave me alone. So in those situations, for sure, I think it's very important to get space. You know, space can be grace. But the advice I would have for men is if you need that time and space, then at minimum, you have to communicate to your spouse that you're, you, you want space and time so that you can process things and that this conversation is important and give her a sense of reliability that, well, let's talk about this later or tomorrow after work or on Sunday morning over tea. Right now, I need to go 
and just process this because men are always trying to understand, I think, especially in marriage, right? You know, what does it mean to have more emotional availability as well as more emotional awareness with themselves? Because that's not something they necessarily got modeled or were trained to do, right? Um, which, which brings me to another one of the topics I wanted to explore is like, what does it actually mean for a man to be emotionally available in a relationship? Because this is something that you probably hear often as I have from women is my husband's not emotionally available for me, right? And one of the first things I'll tend to say to sisters is, look, especially if a sister, let's say, got married, left her family, lives in another state or country, there's going to be a lot of overcompensation that she's looking for as far as her social support system that now the man is, well, you're the one who took me away from my family and my life. So like, you have to be my best friend, my lover, my, my imam, my companions, like it's too many hats for one person to play. And so the man himself is also coming into this, not really knowing a lot about his own access of emotions and how to express them. Right. And so typically when we don't know what to do and we're feeling a lot, we will get quiet or aggressive. Right. This is typically what I notice. Um, But uh, what does it mean to be emotionally available in relationship uh, for men? Like what are women usually voicing that to mean for them? Is it more conversation? Is it more romantic stuff? Is it saying, you know, acknowledging that she looks nice? Like what's some of your thoughts about that sister? Um, So I I think that can mean many things for many people. So I'm just going to tell you what I hear a lot since I I talk to women in 150 countries. And what I find really interesting is when you talk to women in that many countries, you think we'd have a lot of diversity in what we have to say. And we really don't. Um, Women still have the same needs. You know, it doesn't matter. They might they might approach them differently or think about them differently or frame them differently. But it's basic things. And like when you were talking before, it had me thinking about the fact that with this, um, how women need to resolve things. So in terms of it being emotionally available, I love what you said about the fact that like he could do that. He could go in his cave, but it would be better if he was doing that. And then also expressing to her, we're still going to resolve that later. See, that's then you've met your need. You've met her need, which is she just wants to know that we're going to eventually talk about this because it burns me to see it just left like this. That, That makes it faster for women. And then they start to trail off in their mind about what it could really mean. And this is where they go down deep, dark rabbit holes about making a lot of assumptions. And I think we all do this, not just women, but like, this is something I tell women about that self-awareness piece, be really careful. Um, and, and so they can start to say, well, it's because I'm not pretty enough. He doesn't love me. It's because I didn't do that the other day. And they start to go into other things that might have nothing to do with it for the husband. So in terms of being emotional available, I think, yes, um, just communicating what's going on in you without going too deep and maybe you'll have some like buzzwords in your house. Um, I was watching this. Um, I was watching this really funny. Um, I don't know. It was like a TikTok or something. I don't watch TikTok too much, but it flashed across my screen. And it was a comedian making a joke about how when you want to talk to women, you want to say one thing, just like one thing. And they'll say like a paragraph back. And then you'll say one thing and they'll say like a paragraph. So if you're texting, they're just like, he was just like, oh, how was your day today? And he just wants you to just be like, oh, it was good. Or how was it? Instead, she was like, oh, you know, first I went to Target and I got this special tea. And then I saw the lady in line and she asked me about my Pilates pants. And then I, and he's going on and on and about how like women just 
want to tell you every detail. And he said, I, I wish they had this thing where I could just press it and I could just say one word, but it would give her whatever she needed back for me, which was like, oh my gosh, I love when you talk about that tea. That's my favorite tea too. <laughs> like they just, the woman needs to feel engaged. So women love to have you interested in what interests them. I get that is not always the case because we could talk about things, but just giving them a space once in a while to acknowledge like, oh, you're really into organizing cabinets right now. That's so great. You know, like whatever they're finding on Pinterest or whatever, they just want to feel like valued and they want to feel heard. And they often just want to feel like um, you're emotionally available in terms of like, if they want to talk about something, I understand women have this need to resolve everything for men and men don't need them to resolve their problems. They have a problem at work. What's wrong, honey? Oh, I have a problem. She wants to sit and fix it for you with you. And you're like, I just don't need that right now. And women don't get that. So I try to help them understand that too. He might just need you to be comforting. He might need you to be like less irritating that day because there was already irritated about something else. That's your way of helping, like help a different way. He might not need that from you. So understanding that like your way of solving things before when you were single is maybe not the way of you solving things now. Maybe you need to understand what he needs. And so clarifying that um, and the way you can do this and pick up on it is there's one thing that I talk to women about a lot. It's called bids. There's a lot of silent bids that happen between husbands and wives. And when you ignore those bids for a long amount of time, that's when you get the rift in a marriage. That's when you get the big resentment, right? And so here's one example of one that I see happen often that I tell women, and I've experienced myself. So I'll give you like for my own personal life. So um, my husband is the garbage guy in the house. He does the garbage. He takes the garbage out. I pretty much clean, you know, my own fair share of all the things in the house. But that's the one thing I said, heavy lifting and things. We made an agreement. See, right in the beginning of the marriage, this is what I do. This is what you do and for both of us. And so he knows. So that day he was having a really bad day. He opens the door, his shoulders are down. So here's the bid, right? I'm like, he lets out the sigh and he trods in the door and he sees the garbage is full and he's like, oh. And then he goes to open the garbage and I put my hand on his shoulder and I say, hey, Looks like you're having a hard day today. You know what? Let me do the garbage. It's okay. Just go, 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 go take a shower, do whatever you want to do. That's me acknowledging his silent bid for emotional understanding. Like you are having something right now and here's my silent level of support. Another day, my husband came in and I, I he opens the door and he was in a great mood and he was like, hey, how was your day? And I'm there with the kids and everything's all over the place and the kid one's pulling me over here, over there. And I'm just like, I... I don't, I don't, I don't know. And he walks over to me and he was like, it looks like an Uber Eats day, right? I don't think you should cook today. <laughs> like, it looks like we have a lot to do already. Like, you know, like I got it. Kebab. Okay, great. And that was it. And these are the, this is what keeps our marriage healthy. We recognize the other person. I don't go, oh my gosh, look at my day. How could you ask me to cook right now? He, he acknowledges me and, and I acknowledge him. And the bid piece is huge. And the minute I say that to women, they're like, oh, I did that just this morning. <laughs> like They're not even aware. So, you know, this is really helpful too. And it's just small levels of mercy. That's really, if we could inject more mercy in our marriages, I think mm. it's helpful. I have a question, um, uh, something that just came up just now. And I, it's a question for both you and uh, for you, sister, and for Kareem. So how does a man allow himself to be vulnerable in that situation during that silent bid where he, on one hand, he's he's having a hard day, right? It's just not his day, right? He's so much happened in the week that didn't go his way. And he wants to be able to just 
vent out to his wife like, hey, this happened at work. This has been happening the last week. But on the other hand, he also feels that if he does that, if he allows himself himself to be vulnerable, he is not he is not upholding his duty as a man, if that makes sense. And so how how can a man allow himself to be vulnerable in that situation? Mm. I think you're first, Kareem. <laughs> then I will try my best to follow you. Yeah. Um, thanks for that question. So first of all, I I think I love this concept of bids. It's um, also something that uh, I've re- been able to resonate with in my own relationship, as well as you know a discussion with others. And often I've said conflicts, resentment, disconnect are often bids for love and connection gone south or sour or unacknowledged. And so this kind of awareness of what's going on for people is really useful, right, to um, step up and and be able to um, feel or see or observe something. Uh, And so that same scenario of like, dude, today's a day I don't want, my wife is just not going to cook. Let me offer, we're going to order food because you can tell what's going on here, right? Um, The question that you brought up, you know, I think for men, this idea of vulnerability can be sometimes synonymous with weakness, or it's just not manly. Um, And sometimes I'll try to tell men to reframe the concept of vulnerability with the very definition of it, of what it is, which is, well, try just being more honest about where you're at, what you're feeling, right? Um, And so by being more honest about where you're at, that's can lead you to wanting to express yourself more or vent more because it's true that men will often be asked, they're having a horrible day. It's how are you doing, honey? I was everything. Everything's fine. Nothing to talk about here, right? Let's just keep going and we keep it in Um, versus why not vent it out? Well, it's like, well, I don't want to vent to my wife. I don't know. That's not going to make me look good as a man or look like I need something. But subhanAllah, by definition, human being is a creature in need, right? Constantly. Um, And so this is just another avenue that we can harness in our relationships by being more more vulnerable is about being more honest or expressing where we're at and what we need. And so if that means like, look, I am just having a really crummy day. I don't know if I'm feeling I can tuck in the kids tonight because that's maybe a routine the person does. Explaining that, right? Having a few moments to just try to gather and explain that. And I think it's important for men to acknowledge that sharing what you need or where you're at with your spouse is not a sign of weakness and it doesn't necessarily take away your value in her eyes, at least in my opinion. Yeah. I think that was a great answer about reframing because it's, it's really is about how you, how you frame it. And if it's going from vulnerability to honesty and for the sisters and a piece of advice to helping your husband do that, it really comes it comes with like what you've done before that moment. Like you've set up this trustful environment, right? What kind of relationship you have where we can give and take. And what I found, because I have a husband that's very cultural, if I could be fair. Um, and, and and so he's very Western, but he's also very not. <laughs> so like, like Kareem said, it's a lot of unlearning and learning. 
the way we do it, my husband and I, is we look at it as like we both come from cultures that might have not have had all the Islamic influences. So we always just remind each other, well, how did the Prophet, peace be upon him, handle this and this? And if we don't know, we encourage one another to learn. So like, for example, I think about how uh, the Prophet, peace be upon him, he went into the lap of Mother Khadija, radiallahu anha, and he cried. He didn't just like share. He sobbed profusely in her lap. And what was her response to him? So I look at that as like role model moments. She wasn't like, oh, you know, men don't cry. Like, what is this? You know, she wasn't, she wasn't like that. She said words of encouragement to him at that moment. But in order for him to have cried in her lap, she had to have created that space for him to feel safe. You know, not that, you know, we all have to cry to, to express ourselves. But like, you know, that that is the thing is she made him feel like unconditionally loved. So he could open up in that space. So are we doing that for our spouses? Do we make our love conditional? Or do we make it like, you know, you know, I'm, I'm always here no matter what. And I think women, we can soften up. I think when our husbands are having that moment, we make it all about us. Like how he's making me feel right now because he's, you know, not able to talk to me. And then I have to start texting him and complaining about like how much this is hurting me, that he won't speak to me. And I don't understand why he doesn't just share. Um, I share with him. And we make it very like egotistically. And men might do the same. I'm just talking about like what I hear women say. And, you know, it could be vice versa. But thinking again of the other person in that moment. So I read hadith and things before about like, about like, like you don't go to sleep and you're upset. Like your happiness is my happiness. So I, 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 I feel like this. Remember I talked about this in the beginning, the, the covering. I, I, I look for you before I look for me. You look for me before, I, you know, and so subhanAllah, I'm like, oh, you know, this is killing me. You're like this. What can I do for you? You need me to do this today? Alhamdulillah. And then my husband will do it for me. So there has to also be the way you approach him, like approach him a little softer. Be like rubbing on his back. You don't got to talk to him. That's the other thing. Sometimes just be quiet. We have to just not talk. Just be next to him. Sit on the couch, rub his back. You know, just feel, make him feel you're there. But you don't have to like talk all about it. So I tell women that too, you know, and and I, I loved what you said about conflict and resentment is just like the bid for love and connection. I mean, we see that with our kids too, right? When they start to act out, we see that with us. Usually like anger is rooted in some type of a fear or pain. So that's another one. If you can identify that in my head, my husband's angry. It doesn't maybe mean anything about me. Maybe there's a deeper concern or pain or issue. And I'm, again, thinking of him first and I'm not personalizing it. That's a really hard thing to do. I know it takes practice, but it's it's really helpful. Otherwise, everything becomes personal and then we start a rift again. So just... The way the Prophet, peace be upon him, did create that loving, accepting, unconditional environment. And then you'll find him naturally be honest. And you might have to teach him. I had to teach my husband things because in his culture, no one speaks, especially to women about these things. Just no. This is why would it wasn't even like, no, it was like, why would I why would I even do that? <laughs> Who does that? And I had to be like, no, the, the Islam. And then we both channeled towards Islam. And we use that as our model instead of our cultural, you know, conundrums that we we had. Right. So using the Quran and Sunnah, the Islamic tradition as a standard is a good way to help us, let's say, filter through some of these cultural framings that we may have to also unlearn. Yeah. Both of us. Right. And, you know, 
earlier you were saying um, sometimes women want to problem solve. I hear that actually a lot in the other direction too, especially guys that are engineers, you know, and the wife just yeah. wants to vent and get acknowledgement or validation, you know, um, and we want to problem solve. Uh, so it's interesting that you mentioned this going the other direction. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, we do want them to, to, we want them mostly to listen. See, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm a little bit different. Um, I'm really about solving more than venting, but I, I know a lot of women are that way. They just feel like you're not acknowledging my pain in the process. Like they want the empathy first. Maybe if you empathize with them and you hear them, then they're open to the problem solving. I think they could get both. But if the men just come at the problem solving first, they're like, you're not getting it. I'm in pain. Right. And like they want the, oh, I acknowledge you're in pain. And men are like, what's the problem? If you just solve the problem, you won't be in pain. Why are we going through the, <laughs> you know, it's the logic of it. So just acknowledging what the other person needs. Remember, that it's about the understanding how they're, they're, they, they're framed and they're, they're built. And then, then you could do your problem solving if it's accepted. <laughs> I don't know if it's accepted. I, uh, you know, I just thought of something of, uh, there's a narration of, uh, the prophet peace be upon him. Um, he was, uh, sleeping with one of his, uh, one of his wives. I don't remember who it was. I can't recall who it was Aisha radiallahu anha, but, um, it was, uh, it was one of his wives and it was the time of the month for her. Right. And, um, he, he left the, he left the bed, uh, I forgot what the reason was, maybe to use the restroom, whatever it may be. And um, he kind of noticed, right? Like it's it's that time of month for her. And uh, it's actually one of my favorite hadiths. I think I think it's actually Um Salama, if I'm not mistaken, this happened. Um, but he noticed that it's, 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 it's the time of month for her. And he leaves the bed. And when he comes back in bed with her, he actually cuddles her and he's he's much closer to her when he comes back in bed with her and i think and that that's such a beautiful hadith it's actually one of my favorite hadiths regarding like the prophet and his wives because it shows that like he noticed her let's say vulnerability her uncomfortability he knew that she felt uncomfortable maybe a little bit embarrassed about herself and he reassured her regardless of how you may feel about yourself i still love you and that i love you very very much i think that and that's something that just came to mind i wanted to say that Yeah, I think that's a, a perfect example of the things we just spoke about of the bid. He acknowledged, he saw that was an unspoken hint she gave off. And then he he responded with that unconditional love and that that need for security. So I think that's, that's yeah, that's absolutely beautiful. Obviously, the Prophet Peace upon him, he's amazing for emotional intelligence. And I feel like the more we are, you know, like that and, and able to pick up these these cues and it's really, it's really beautiful. I think if there are 10 people in front of him, he will respond to them 10 different ways because he will just respond to what he's noticing and picking up and, and their background and whatever. He's putting all the pieces in context and that's such a great skill. So absolutely love that. Why do you think, sister, there are some women who when they get upset with their husbands, they will have, like you said, these paragraphs of things to write in a text message. Like they get into a little scuffle in the morning, he goes to work and then, you know, he's getting berated with paragraphs of stuff. And it's often talking about other things that's, that has nothing to do with that morning. How, how do we help men understand what's going on here for some women that they may approach their conflicts or feeling upset in such a way? Um, I think that that comes down again to that 
picking up on things like reading between the lines sometimes like when women use and men use these terms like you never do this you're always doing that you know there's here you go again it's like some type of bottled up built up and you know you know it's funny there not every woman actually goes off a lot of them stay quiet too and that's like equally not good because then they you know, it's good to express ourselves, but I mean, like, I'm talking about the healthy aspect of it, right? So we're going off, right? And we're not supposed to talk when we're angry, but we do because this is, we're human. But then some women, they keep it bottled. So some women, they call me up and they've had all types of situations. I'm not going to get into it, that things that have happened to them. And I said, well, what, what do you say to your husband? Nothing. In my culture, you don't talk about these things or in my culture, you know, so the women, some of them like culturally will not speak to their husbands. And then some of them will overspeak. And so either way, I think like if the men, if they are doing the texting like that, um, you know, you have to look between the lines. If you're using words like never, always something, it could be something deeper and something bigger. And this is just a trigger. And that's what I see a lot. And so I teach the women to be aware of their own triggers. And, and once you're aware of your own trigger, and they're usually pretty, pretty, it's like a pattern. Like even my daughter, you know. My daughter, you know, with toddlers, they think toddlers are always going crazy. Toddlers, you know, go through tantrums. Tantrums are usually a pattern. I mean, there's stuff where it's, you know, but it's the same type of thing. I'm not comparing like women or men to toddlers. I'm trying to say it's about awareness, not just of yourself, but all your family members. Like I know what will set my husband off, not having his socks. <laughs> that's that's one of the things, you know, just that's his thing. And there's something that will make me upset. And he knows what it is. And once you're aware, you're like, oh, let's just try to avoid those. Like, why am I going to make them happen if I know? And so when you know the trigger, you can have something to do or say before. So if your husband, if you're the man and you know that her ranting is she's probably off on a trigger, have your prepared response. And I think, you know, you, I think a lot of you said a lot of great things that are making me think. Let's definitely talk about that when I get home, because I think if we text about it, it it's not going to get its, you know, its full attention. That's what she wants to hear. She wants to hear you're going to acknowledge her problems and talk about it. I know you don't want to go home then and have that conversation, but maybe. But the point is, otherwise it will be all day while you're at work, right? So you want to just acknowledge it and also understand that it could be something else. And if you know her trigger is because you haven't spent time with her in a while or you're always on your phone or you went to your brother's house, like whatever it is, you know, then just know it could be that and that could be what needs to be acknowledged and just knowing each other's boundaries and triggers, yeah. I'll often tell people also important conversations should not be had over text messages. Now I yeah, understand absolutely. in some situations, like if a person never talks or doesn't feel comfortable or safe to express themselves and communicate in person, text messages might be a way where they can be more open or vulnerable or honest about their needs and feelings. And so in those cases, I can see why it's useful, but it should only be a stepping stone towards being able to be present, maintain self-regulation, a relaxed bodily state, even around uncomfortable topics, and then be able to exchange some messages and upgrade and edit understandings as needed, right? Because we all have our marriage story that we live in, whether it's the husband's or the wife's version. Um, but do you think this is also an important tip, like important or emotionally high-charged conversations are probably best had in person uh, because in text we you know may feel like we're getting something out but then if we don't actually talk about it in person 
Um, it's almost like just putting a, a Band-Aid on a, on a wound, but never addressing what's causing those wounds to be cut or opened um, at its core. I think you made a lot of really great points because some people need to write in order to express what they want to say. So that is great, right? But in the context of texting, you cannot understand tone. That's a huge one. So what we typically do is we read it the way we feel. If I'm angry, I'm reading like you just yelled at me, right? And so like, for example, I could say that's great. Or I could be like, that's great. You know, I, I could say it with a snarky sarcasm. And so however you feel about me in that moment or you're feeling in your, in your frustration. So I, I have the same thing with my own parents. Sometimes my mom will say something to me and I say, so I'm just like, oh, great mom. Like, that's nice. And my mom's like, why did you say it like that? And I'm like, but it was a text. So she read it a different way. I was like, oh my gosh. And so what I try to do actually is, you know how like I, I try not to talk to people on, on text. I try to talk on WhatsApp. And if I feel it's getting heated, I actually stop texting and I just leave a voice message so they can hear my tone. And then I will say that thing about like, I think that's really great. Let's talk about that when we get home. So they could hear what I'm saying as opposed to, yeah. So that's why I try to stop it. Um, I'm not always perfect, but I do. And even actually when I work in my teams, I do the same thing. If I notice two people are going at it, I'll get on the, I'll be like, can we get on a call or let's get on the voice message thing as opposed to the text so we can hear each other better for a second. Cause we're international. It's a little bit hard sometimes, but yeah, same thing. I hundred percent, hundred percent agree. I mean, 80% of what we say is nonverbal. Sorry. So for sure, having even a voice memo, gives you more tone, gives you more sense of what's going on with the person. So that's a, that's a great tip to remember that we will impose what we actually feel in that moment and read the text. We'll give it our own context rather than being the other person being able to give that context, even if it's in such a situation like a voice memo or even a video. Go ahead, Noma. Yeah, I wanted to make a quick point here. So the first of all, the voice note, that's like genius i don't know why i never think about the voice note thing like it's already there on the iphone and on whatsapp like iMessage it already exists but um yeah that's actually a great tip to use the uh, voice note but it's not it's not because i'm brilliant it's because i've had to use it <laughs> <laughs> so, you know it's, it comes you know things come at the moment yeah. you're like oh i need to stop doing this so yeah it's come out of necessity yeah. so. i just wanted to make a quick point about the whole you know not not using text messages to talk about really important issues or things that need to be addressed in a relationship like a marriage, right? And this ties back to an earlier point that we talked about, which is like undoing a lot of these things before marriage even takes place, before the topic or the idea of wanting to get married. Because with a lot of young people, and this is my, myself included, you know, communicating through text messages is what we've been doing for 10, 15 years, Right. And so we think, oh, when I get into a marriage and if I have a problem, I'll just do the same thing, which actually is not the answer to that. Right. And a lot of this does have to do with with certain cultures that we grow up in. Right. Like when we look at our parents, you know, they never let's say like we never learned from them how to have a conversation to address. Don't use never or always. <laughs> yeah. Well, use use yet. We didn't. Learn we didn't yet. learn yet, <laughs> right? We didn't learn yet how to address a certain thing without turning it into an argument. Because with certain cultures, there's this idea that if I have to talk about a certain thing, it equals a, an argument. Therefore, I'm not going to talk about it. And we sort of pick up on that as as children 
And we grew up with that same mentality. And then we approach the marriage in that same manner, which is like, well, I don't want to talk about it because if I do, I'm just going to start arguing, right? And that's why this, this undoing before marriage is so important, just learning how to communicate, using your family as a way to practice this, right? Like having to sit down and talk with your mother, your father, your brother, your, or your sister, and using this as a mode of practice to prepare you for marriage. I love that you said that too. And, and and what you could add to that only is like, and when you're practicing with them, don't expect good things. Like I, this is your moment to expect someone's going to come back and say something hurtful. And, and it happens because if you're talking to someone in a culture where you're trying to undo and you're talking to that same group of people, um, it's better for you to, like I said, depersonalize every situation. So uh, what I what I say to women is because like they have a lot of hurtful things they always tell me about, well, my parents this, and I don't know how to have a healthy marriage. Exactly what you said. I don't know how to talk to people because this is how my mother and father spoke. And I said, and but most of it comes first before their husband, like their own hurt with themselves with their parents. So I tell them it's like this. I have a situation with certain family members where I actually tried to go to therapy with them because I realized if I'm talking, they're not listening. We need a third party. And we didn't have a situation where you could bring like in a sheikh or something like that. So they were open to this type of a therapeutic thing. I was like, great, let's just do anything. And, um, and, and shortly after maybe just a couple weeks of being with that person, they stopped the sessions. And I said to them, excuse me, we didn't resolve it. Why did you stop the sessions? And I don't know why they said this to me, because I don't think maybe it's something they would have normally say to like a client, quote unquote, is they said, well, I'm just going to be honest with you. That family member is not changing. So you have one of two things. Either you cut them off and they were they were a non-Muslim at the time. So we know we don't we don't cut kinship. They said, yeah, you cut them off. You accept that's who they are and you just live with it. And that was hard for me. That was like a small death. I said to myself, oh, my gosh, this person is never going to be who I need them to be. And they're my family and I love them. And that was really hard. But then after I did, I said, okay, so all I'm going to do is every time they say something harsh to me back, I'm going to say, well, that's their story and that's their perspective. And and maybe they don't have the tools to respond to me the way I need them to. So it's likewise with our, with our spouses, there has to be a level of mercy because maybe they were not given the tools to respond and communicate well. So instead of making it a personal vendetta, like, oh my gosh, they don't care about me again, the me, me, me it's well, well, maybe I have to model it for them. A lot of times I'm modeling in the house for all different family members because no one taught them and I can't, I'm not in a position where they maybe want me to teach them or sometimes they are open to it. Either way, I'm trying to model it by changing myself first. And then I'm also not taking everything personal because I realize that that's their perspective. It doesn't mean it's the truth. Maybe I'll look into it. You know, I'll see, I'll consider it, but I don't feel like, you know, attacked by it. And maybe they don't have the tools to do what I need them to do. So it, it, it depersonalizes the situation. And now I can look at what's really happening because I've taken the emotional aspect out of it for a moment so I could have that clarity of thought. And, I, and, and that's what you made me think about, like that need for us to do that more in our own families in a healthy way and then with our spouses. It's very insightful, like this idea of, I mean, I've said this before, don't take everything so personally when it comes to marriage counseling, right? And there's sometimes this competitiveness between husband and wife around who's hurt who more. Or if I point out something, well, you have done this. And well, that's because of this. Why do you think people get stuck in that loop of competitiveness or, you know, ego battles? Um, 
and we don't actually want to make each other feel better. We just want to keep proving how, well, you've also hurt me too. Now, I know this, of course, may connect to past trauma or um, family modeling or lack of, but if someone's in this cycle, like what's one of the ways to try to stop this pattern from reoccurring? I mean, like you said, it could be so many things depending on who it is. It could be something deeper. But if we just talk about the relationship aspect of it, the thing is this, again, if I'm always looking at what someone else did to me and I'm not looking at my piece, what I try to tell myself every morning is my job every day, literally, as I live and breathe, is to give everybody the haq. That's my job. I have to give everybody their rights. Why? Whoa, that's like, what are you, are you serving everyone else? You're like the, the slave to everyone else? No, I'm the slave to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And if I am the person who dies tomorrow, you know what Allah will ask me about? Did you give them their haq? Did you give them their rights? He will not ask me about my rights. He will ask those people when they die and they will be in a lot of trouble. So I let Allah do his piece and I let me do my piece. And it's not that I let them get off the hook. It's just that I, instead of focusing always of what I am not given and I've been cheated on or I've been harmed on, before I can even go there, to be fair, Islamically, I have to first correct myself. So if I do that and I say, well, my husband's really mad at me lately because of A, B, C, D, or he's not giving me what I need, I have to say, well, did I actually give him what he needs, to be fair, before I can be the hypocrite and open my mouth? Am I doing my piece because I don't want to be a manafiq? And so I try to do for my husband first. Then if my husband is still being whatever or whatever, or the husband to the wife like this, then, you know, I will say something. And it's not that I'm saying you wait for these moments. I'm just saying on a regular daily basis, I'm self-checking in to try not to be that person because Islamically, this is just all a test. If we pull back away from the emotional pieces, like it's really just all an iftila every day. Every moment, the way we deal with our kids, our spouse, it's just another test. Are you going to do the right thing? Maybe Allah gave me this so I can I can be elevated. Or maybe he did it as a punishment. Either way, it is to be received well. Because Allah is al-adl, he's the most just. So if he did it, I deserved it. I probably did something. Now I'm now I'm even. And now I don't carry that with me. You know, hopefully I go to Jannah. May Allah give all of his Jannah. I mean, Rabbi Alameen. But, you know, like the thing about the bitterness is, yes, you can talk to your husband how you feel and this, but we have to do a lot of self-awareness first. And a lot of what I do, because like I make journals, I I, I, I I actually had to create these for women because they were going and buying like non-Muslim ones. And I do it. And I actually have things on my podcast um, where I teach women, take five minutes every morning to self-check in. And I have a methodology, I call it the four-point method, and they, they do those methods and they pivot from being negative to positive. If you self-checked in, now you're ready to face the world. You've filled your little cup and you go out. And then I have a totally, that's just like one journal. Then I have a totally different journal that's not about self-checking in. That's about like, oh, like, let me look at all the things inside of me that have been festering. So what I would say to you is, if I'm regularly doing that work, five minutes, 10 minutes. I know we're busy in life, but if you don't make time for these things, this means you haven't prioritized it. If you haven't prioritized it, it's not going to happen. So if I do that regularly, then I'm more aware. When I go to speak to my husband, I'll have a lot more well-informed things to say, or I've had a lot of thought process. I'm not just like, you know, regret, you know anything that comes out of my mouth is just knives. And so I think each of us, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says to dabr, reflect, reflect on why you're here. Reflect on the sky, reflect. Am I doing daily self-awareness, check-ins, reflections? If I am, things don't build up. And um, 
you know, if we can look at each other and when my wife starts crying and or my husband starts getting angry, I can look past that. Usually what I do is I slow down and I go, what's really happening? In my head, that's what I'm saying. Okay. I let him yell. Okay. What's really happening? Hmm. What's happening lately? Oh, yeah, that thing with the business. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. So then I respond. I took a 30-second, a 10-second before I opened my mouth or I opened my fingers. Hopefully, I don't text. But So these moments of pulling back, waiting, thinking, reflecting, if we do these regularly, well, Allah, Allah gave us the tools. We don't use them. We're just living on autopilot and we're cruising through life. And then we don't, we're like, why, do, why is this happening to me? So I feel like if we use those tools more practically, and for me, just so you know, women get this stuff, men get this stuff, but then like tomorrow, right, after you close the podcast, they're like, how do I actually do that? That's why literally, because I'm an educator in my background, I had to, that's why I started my podcast, everything. I had to literally make, first you do this, step one. I had to write it on books. I had to give them courses. I had to give them classes because I don't like to talk fluff and stuff. I want to talk about practicality. Transference is the hardest piece. It's really easy to watch YouTube videos and Instagrams and things. And like, how do I actually implement that? They don't know. So I find that when I gave them these things, they feel they have more success because they're able to do it in a more handheld way. I was shocked how much women want handholding. Um, I don't know about men. You guys can tell me, but like, they're like, oh, that's great. But how do I do that? And then I'll explain the concept that I think we're good. They're not. They said, no, I want to know like, but like which one first? And then second, and like, I literally had to do that. And I had to ask myself, I had to debunk myself. Okay, so like, what am I doing in that moment when that worked for me? I had to like backward design and then create these, all my resources are originally created for that reason. It was all in 20 years of seeing that. But a lot of people want the step-by-steps because they don't understand how to do what you just asked me, Kareem. They don't understand like how, okay, I do this, but then like how? It's it's not easy. It's an unlearning and relearning, like you said. I think the lack of access of tools on learning these things is an integral part as well. There's um, there was a study that was done, and this is mentioned in Dr. Warren Farrell's book, The Boy Crisis, where he talks about how there's a study that was done to measure men's empathy versus women's empathy. And the study was, it was they gave men tools to identify empathy, and they gave women tools to identify empathy. And the really, really cool thing about this study, the conclusion was that men were able to be as empathetic as women when they were given the tools to be empathetic. So the idea is men know how to be, we know how to be empathetic if we're given the tools to be empathetic. We just have to be given those tools, right? Um, And I think that lack of access to those tools is what often causes us to be like, well, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to start. I don't know what direction to take. Yeah, I think that's so true. And, you know, it's funny because I was thinking about, as you're saying that, I'm thinking about my situation with my son. My son is 12, so he's going to be a man, you know, inshallah ta'ala. May Allah increase him. And um, I started from five years old with him on how to stop and pause in the moment. Like I used to, when he was smaller, I would do it more like romantically, like, or like fun. And, you know, I'd be like, oh, you know, when you breathe, you have to stop and breathe when you're upset. I said, you have to blow rainbows. And I was like, do you see the rainbows? What color are they? And I mean, Kim Jones is excited about. And then I, because, you know, breathing slower reduces your heart rate, which calms you down. So when he was upset in the moment, I would teach him these things. And then, like you said, little empathy tricks. And then I also had to teach him that when you have a situation with somebody, it doesn't mean the rest of the day is horrible. Like just this morning, he was having some type of a debate with his father and he felt really like it didn't go the way he wanted. And then he, he felt really bad. And then he walked up to me in the kitchen. He said, mommy, I think I can restart my day. 
we talked about that. I can restart my day, can't I? It's 11 o'clock. I can go back. And I said, yes. We have a joke when they're little. I go like this. And I make this thing and I go, and then I go back up the stairs and he runs up the stairs and he comes down. He goes, good morning, mommy. I go, oh my gosh, good morning. And this whole concept of like, you know, now I'm married. It sucks forever. Oh, now the day went bad. The day's bad forever. Like we do all these like very crazy things with our negative thinking. So I even taught my kids. So I would encourage as we're talking about this to teach your children these concepts from very small. And that way I taught them like, this is the way you respond to challenge. And I had to model it, which is also not fun because like, oh, I have to be the life coach for my child. And that's really hard every day because we have our own emotions. So even with your marriage, your kids are watching a lot of, I had a woman the other day call me up and you know, her husband, not, this is not because it's a man I'm saying anything about, man, I'm just letting you know, he had a fight with his wife. He was very upset. He turned to the children and he said, you see what mommy did to us? This is horrible of mommy and mommy. And he dragged the kids all in it. And she, she was not mad at him at all. She said, oh, you know, I'm a horrible person. All the kids hate me in the house now. The husband hates me. I'm ostracized. I'm in the room alone now. I'm in the, I said, what happened here? So, you know, this is because I'm going to guess without judging anyone that nobody taught that brother that that's not a good idea. Right. So like, let's 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 share from young in our families that we shouldn't do that. And there's things that women do that could be equally egregious. You know, so I'm saying so it really starts in our homes. I know we love to wait until we get into the marriages. But as we're now married and having our kids, I have to constantly remind myself, whatever I don't fix now could be a problem for them later. So let me let me fix myself first. I'm constantly thinking of accountability to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's a scary thing, but it's also beautiful. I see my daughter now. I have older kids. She's 25 and I have, so I have grandkids too. And when I see her do things, I could see her mimicking me. The good and the bad. It's unfortunate. But I see her mimicking me in her marriage. And I said, subhanAllah, I've, I, she never said anything. We didn't even talk about that, but she, she's saying it just like I say it when she's talking to him. I'm like, oh, my gosh. So now we have a younger set of kids. I said, oh, the responsibility, if we only knew. So may Allah make it easy for us to teach these things to our children, too, for the next generation. What's also coming up for me there is we we've also, often also think that when a husband and wife who have children get into arguments or conflicts. Now, it depends on the nature of the conflict or the argument. But a lot of times we get into these little tips daily, real-time, kitchen, or the trash wasn't taken out, or I didn't like the way you dealt with something with one of the kids, and then we get involved. And so those are also great opportunities to model for the children how we can have reflection, self-regulation, resolve things, right? Versus one parent just rolls their eyes and the other one just keeps yelling. Or we get all more dramatic, like, oh, see, your husband, your, your father hates me, or I'm the worst mother on earth. And now we just create these really dramatic negative narratives that the kids are observing. Those are also great opportunities in real time where we can show them, like, hey, spouse, let's take some deep breaths. Seems like you've had a long day. Like, why are you yelling at me right now about this or, or the child? What can we do, right? And so in, even sometimes when kids get older, they even get involved, in what's going on, mom or dad, like, why are you screaming? Or mommy didn't do that or say this or, right? So there are going to be times like this too, where the modeling and the representation is happening in real time versus like, we have to go in the bedroom every single time we're arguing and deal with it in closed doors, you know, behind closed doors, so to speak. Okay. I just have one, yeah, just one final question uh, for you, sister. So one of the things that came up to me um, as, as we were discussing uh, here at the end was 
the way sometimes relatives try to get involved in a newly married couple or a couple trying to get married, right? During the courtship process or they, they just got married. And um, I wanted to see like, what advice do you typically give women to, let's say, you know, their, their husband's relative is saying something about the way they're going about the marriage, how they're even getting married, like whether they have the nikah and then they wait six months for the reception, right? Or like just things like that, right? Where you know that your the husband's relative is gossiping in some way, shape or form. Is there any advice that you give to the sisters when they sort of approach you about this specific problem? So this is before they're married. Before they're married or even in like the first few months after they're married. Yeah, this is really big. I get this a lot in terms of um, the pre-staff. Because, okay, so we teach women the before marriage and the during, like, the during marriage, how to have a great marriage. But then there's also the before piece, which is the heaviest piece, I think, the most important piece. So let me say it like this. When we teach it to women, it's you and you, you and him, you and the family, his family, your family, and then all of the, um, like, we call that, um, I think we call this, like, the engagement of everything. I don't mean like engagement. Um, we're going to call it, I think rules for engagement, we call it, but not like real engagement. We mean like, what about what are the rules about the mahar and can he talk to you and all stuff like that. So when we get to that piece, I tell the women like this, there's four areas you have to know. It's you and yourself, you and him, which is the compatibility and all that stuff. Because once you know your own non-negotiables and you've self-explored and all the stuff we talked about today, then when you go to him, you're coming with a way clearer lens and then we could knock off people or, or keep them based on like what's aligned with here because we've done the work. But then when you get over here, there's a lot of flags you have to look for too. I would say over-involvement of the family members is a flag. Now, it's not a bad or good flag yet. To me, it's, it really depends. What are you willing, willing to do? Where's your place in the family? Are you okay with their perception of what where you belong because like who you are as a woman and your role in the family might be very different than the way you were raised or we're expecting you're just going to stay home and do stuff or we're expecting that you're every time you have a problem you gotta we're going to be in it like what are their expectations this is really important to explore and what i would say is even more important to explore after that is your husband's or your soon-to-be husband's response to that i say watch him when his mom is ordering him to do stuff, is he like, okay, okay, mom, okay. And then he just does it without any thoughts of his own? Or is he trying to do the Islamic thing, advise his mom, be fair with you? Is he, does he have this ability to teeter between and and to, to create harmonious situations? Because your husband's a pivotal person right now. He's the one between you and the family. If he doesn't know how to give you a voice, give them a voice, give you respect, give them respect then whatever you're experiencing right now is most likely the same thing you're going to experience when you're married. Ask yourself if you're okay with that. That's what I tell them. Are you, are you okay with that dynamic right now? Most women are like, no, you know, I need him to step up and say, you can't tell my wife that. I said, but maybe he can't. Maybe in his culture, that's not okay. And he's not comfortable. And then it becomes quite the pickle, to be honest, because then the brother has to decide, am I going to follow Islam or I'm going to follow my cultural expectations of my family? And you know how that goes, especially in certain cultures, like, oh, you're a horrible son. You're bad. Look what you did to your mother. You made her cry, you know? But there's got to be this point where you put, like, I tell the girls, you got to put your big girl boots on, okay? You got to be a woman now, OK? 
Okay, we're done with the whole like, you know, like you got to say what you got to say because it's the right thing to do. You got to let it go because it's the right thing to do. You got to go because it's the right thing to do. Like you have to stop with the whole like my parent. That's why I said, again, you have to know all the Islamic rules first. What does that mean? Does that mean my mother-in-law can get involved with my family at a certain level and I have to put up with it? Actually, no. But your husband is going to be the bigger problem because it's going to wedge you to where you're fighting about her all the time. Not all mother-in-laws are evil. I mean, I'm a mother-in-law. I have to say that. So, so alhamdulillah, like, you know, I try, I think about that all the time. Oh gosh, I don't want to be the one to make problems. So, um, you know, I think it's, it's the way you each are going to respond to each other's parents. That's really important. I don't know. What do you feel about that, Kareem? I think those are some really good insights. Um, definitely, I would love to continue more of these conversations with you in the future. Uh, but you're right. I think uh, we have to go from boys become, becoming men and, and, and not being boys anymore or girls into women. And that does require, as I've said to men specifically who are still kind of mama's boys, I say, look, there's a second umbilical cord that you have to learn to cut, right? Um, because, and this now brings in constructs of, oh, do you, ha you have to obey your parents no matter what. You have to always prioritize other people's needs. And now we're going to get into enmeshment and codependency and all these types of dynamics that exist. But it is true that if we use Islam as our standard, it helps us perhaps transcend some of these cultural chains that aren't always even fitra friendly. Like we can feel it in our hearts a lot of times. Like this doesn't feel right. The expectations, the burden, you know, the pressure, but we keep doing it because we've been programmed to, right? And so those, those things are certainly part of that big learning curve. And I remember a young lady just last year was, she was saying this, like, I love this guy. He's a great guy. They're planning to get married, but he is still on, on his mom's leash. And she finds it very challenging to see him as a man that can take care of her if he is still a mama's boy. Let's just be straight, right? So that is something that, you know, some men do go through. And uh, maybe in another top, uh, another show, we can break some of these ones, uh, some of these questions down more, inshallah, because there are so many working parts. But mindful Muslima. We really appreciate you coming. We will have uh, your links in our description. Yes. Mr. Noman Farooq, thank you so much for joining. Absolutely. And uh, may Allah bless your work and all of us and our families. And uh, may Allah give benefit to the Ummah for those who listen and watch in the future. Inshallah, thank you so much. Jazakumallah khayyana. It was a pleasure. And I'm so happy that you're talking about these topics with your audience. Um, just honored to be here. Okay.